0: I want you, if you will, to turn back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. Now, I know that I said last time that ten messages were it for the Christian mind. But I do want to talk a little bit more about it this morning not from Romans 12:1 and 2 necessarily but from Romans 12:3 but for the opportunity to have the proper setting I want to read verses 1, 2 and 3 of Romans 12 in your hearing so that we might then connect them together and then preach through verse 3 this morning Romans 12:1 through 3 I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, over the last ten messages from Romans, we've considered what Paul means when he commands True believers in Jesus Christ to be a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice unto God the Father. And we began in Romans 12:2 when we looked at this very wonderful prescription, this exhortative prescription to live as a sacrifice unto God, to the ethical practicality of how to do so in verse 2. And he says, of course, from the negative, don't be conformed to this world. And then from the positive, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And as we delved into the matter of the renewal of the Christian mind, I hastened to tell you that there was so much that Scripture gives us when it describes the mind that we're to have as a Christian. And Paul's not done. he does say there as we read it in verse three, that we're to do something else with regard to our thinking and in the very first verse coming out of these monumental words of Romans twelve one and two, and I would say vitally connected to those words because the word for little Greek word gar, which connects verse three with verses one and two and Paul's paradigm here for living as a sacrifice is for us to understand in bold relief. We need to understand the very first component that Paul wants us to know about the proper Christian mind. And that is why he says what he does in verse 3 about our thinking. In fact, we could say it this way. Because he links verse 3 with that little connector word 4, grounding it in what he said in verses 1 and 2, we could say it like this, The most important thinking a Christian can do is not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. That's Paul's inspired way of to say that we ought to have the proper Christian mind, especially, most importantly, most preeminently, most supremely, in humility. A lack of pride. The most important thinking that a Christian can do is to set his mind on a divine reality check so that he's not thinking more highly of himself than he ought to think. And maybe Paul was calling these Roman believers to become aware or to beware of this lofty thinking about themselves in the very context of what he has just said in verses 1 and 2. What do I mean? Well, what I mean by that is this. Think about it. If we possess the Spirit of God... As we are told in Romans 8, verses 5 to 9, if you have the Spirit of Christ, you belong to God. Christ is in you. The Spirit of God is resident within you. And if you have the Spirit of God, that means that you are the possessor of the infinite mind of God, the infinite ruler, and the infinite guide of the universe. And to borrow the language of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we have the very mind of Christ. We have the opportunity even to use that language of Romans 12, 1 and 2, to have a mind which is progressively being spiritually transformed. The mind of Christ. Taking the Spirit-inspired text of Holy Scripture and through the Spirit's illuminating power, can transform our very thinking so that we can discern the good and the perfect will of God that is acceptable to ourselves and to God Himself. And I would say that the biggest danger to this marvelous process of mind renewal, the biggest danger is that we have in our own sinfulness the capacity not only to understand truth, that's the good part, but to take the truth, to understand the truth, and instead of apply the truth as it rightly ought to be applied, we would rather become proud of it. Through our reading, through our study, through our meditation, through our understanding of biblical themes and biblical ideas, I think Paul is warning us that there is a very definite problem in the heart of every genuine believer that he could take the truth of God, that he could, by the mercies of God, understand through the illuminating Holy Spirit the power of God, the truth of God, the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, and take that and go instead to a different direction from humility, and that is to be proud and arrogant about the truth we have. I think that may be what Paul is driving us toward here. It could be that he's challenging us to assume that we are to be humble believers and not those who think that because we have the truth and the world does not, or maybe even in the world of Christianity itself, that we ourselves are more super spiritual than others and that we have all of these lofty thoughts about God and and His truth is so transformative in our lives, and that therefore we might think ourselves better than others around us. Certainly better than those in the world, of course, unbelievers. But maybe even when we begin to look around in church life, and we begin to look around at others, we could tend to look down our noses at those who aren't pursuing this truth in the way that we are. Uh, Maybe they're not progressing at the kind of rate we are and we can become very proud about that fact. must be a huge temptation if the first thing that the Apostle Paul says in verse 3 coming out of those very monumental verses of 1 and 2 don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. that's interesting to me. Because as I meditated on that this week, I thought to myself, now wait a minute, Paul. If if you have just told us in Romans twelve, one and two that we ought to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and that we ought to do it in such a way that we are, with every fiber and fabric of our being, trying to discern what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And if you have been telling us, and as I have been showing you through all of these pages of Holy Scripture, and we could go with so much more needing to be said, that we are to think, 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 think in the Christian life, use our minds, use the capacities that God has given us, be sensitive in our consciences, use this gray matter that we have been gifted to receive by God, now you're saying, now here's something I don't want you to think. That just sort of jolts you. All of this that I'm supposed to be doing to develop and cultivate my Christian mind, and the first thing out of the chute is something He tells me that I'm not supposed to do with my thinking. It's kind of interesting. And I suppose He's saying it because if according to verse 1 of chapter 12 we've been granted these manifold mercies by God the Father, and if these mercies are compelling us these mercies of all that we read about theologically and doctrinally from chapters 1 to 11, all of these things that we have been told about God and about the world and about ourselves and about our sin and about redemption and about Jesus Christ and about election and about foreordination and about glory, and about justification and sanctification, and if all of those manifold mercies have been given to us to compel us to live sacrificial lives acceptable to God in a God-induced desire for spiritual worship, then maybe He really is on the right track that when we get into those kinds of lofty thoughts, because of who we are, He has to warn us. He has to warn us that we can become so lofty in our thinking that whether it's related to Him or it's related to our relationship to those around us, we have to be careful. We have to be very, very careful about not being high-minded. About being proud. That's out of the question, he says. Knowing the mercies we've received from the Lord, we humbly respond to those around us. Why? Because it is those very mercies that we have received. It's something we did not have the capacity to engender in and for ourselves. It is what God has given to us. We're we're the blessed recipients of God's mercy that ought to humble us. And it's obvious to me that Paul is attempting to address some issue within the church at Rome when he writes these exhortations in Romans 12 and following. And he links verses 1 and 2 with that little word for, as I told you, of verse 3. And then he even links by that same use of the word for in verse 4 when he begins to talk about various ministries in the church. Look at what he says in verse 4. For, coming right out of this idea of not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think, for... Because, we could say, as in one body we have many members and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And when he gets into the practicalities of the ministry function of ourselves toward one another, and as we're ministering individually as members of the body of Christ, there's always this banner idea. There's always this overhanging principle. And it is, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And somehow, and in some way, in the miraculous initiation of the Trinity, we as believers in Jesus Christ are all brought into a vital spiritual union where there is at once in the With us as the body of Christ, as well as at the very same time, an individuality of our ministry functions toward one another in that same body. And somehow, within that kind of spiritual union of indivisibility and the individual functioning of our individual giftedness and functioning of the ministry of the body of Christ, we are to be warned. That we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. I don't know what kind of arrogant thinking was going on in the church at Rome during this time of the first century. But I know this. Whatever they were going through, whatever specifics there were, and we don't know what they were, we can come to grips not with the understanding of exactly what they were going through, but by application we know full well the principle that Paul is teaching us for what we need to go through and what we are going through as the Bible church of Little Rock in the 21st century. Maybe it's not so important to understand exactly what they were going through, but it is vital for us to understand this very principle from God's word, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, for the 21st-century Bible church of Little Rock. Now I want you this morning to look more closely at what Paul is driving toward here in Romans 12:3. That's all we have time to cover this morning. One verse: "I know, I know. It's long, long, long as we think. It's a long process. And, truth be told, I'm so dull, I can't understand more than one verse at a time anyway. Notice what Paul first says here. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Stop there. Why does Paul do this? Well, he does this because he's speaking, as he often does with this particular phrase, for the grace given to me in his letters, that it has to do with His apostolic authority. The grace given to Him is not something that just is a generic thing that He's saying off the cuff, like God's given me some grace and I want to tell you about something. That's a somewhat technical phrase that Paul is using there to speak of His apostolic authority. For the grace given to me in my calling that I've received from the Lord as an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm speaking to you authoritatively here. And notice that he also includes everyone in the church when he warns them about this arrogant thinking. He says, for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Why? Well, because he's speaking to the body. He's speaking to every member of that local church body. Every single individual who is a part of the spiritual body of Christ manifested in the local church in Rome must heed what Paul is saying. And then he gives the command. Look at it with me. I say to everyone among you, here's that command, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now, you can't necessarily see it come through so clearly in our English Bible translations, but Paul is actually giving us wordplay here. Because in this very short little phrase, he uses the Greek word phraneo, which we discovered a couple of times ago, means to think, means to set your minds upon. It's that beautiful capturing of Colossians 3, set your minds. Romans 8, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. He uses that that word or family of words four times in that little phrase. That little command there. Not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. It's amazing. It's apparently so very important, this matter of right thinking, that he uses a word four times in that same context that is essentially the same concept, the same word. Notice, he says, I say to everyone among you, not to, and here I'm going to sort of translate it for you very literally and very essentially, that gives you a real sense in English, even though it's going to be an awkward type of sentence, I'm going to show you what he's really saying here. I say to everyone among you, Quote, not to think of himself, to think of himself more highly than he ought. That little phrase there, think of himself more highly than he ought, could all be captured, and it is, by one Greek word, huperephronane. Little word "huper" on the front of phronane. To think high-mindedly. And in English, all of those words that we have to use in English, To translate this one Greek word is a must, because with this one Greek word, it really is a sense of someone who's thinking more highly of himself than he ought. All of these English words essentially needing to be used to bring out the right sense of this one word. And so he says, I appeal, I say, I command every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought. And then he says to think. Using fronain again, but to think, using it again, with sober, and then he uses another form of that word, thinking. It's amazing. You, you ought not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober Thinking. This is this is an emphasis. This is the wordplay. This is what he's doing. This is why he's doing it. And the concept is he's, is he's saying that our thinking must be a thinking which is higher, which is not to be higher than we ought to think. And I think he even uses this particular compound form of this word to intensify it for us. This this Who paraphronane, it's high mindedness to to think beyond, to think beyond your assessment. Wrongly so, of course. You're you're really at one level, the accurate level of assessment, where you ought to be, and then you begin to think at a much higher level than reality. And of course, usually, because of our sinfulness, even in our regenerate condition, we tend to think of ourselves with great favor, don't we? We tend to give ourselves always the best benefits of the doubt. We tend to think of ourselves not with a reality assessment, but we're thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And that's what he's saying. You have very lofty thoughts about yourself and your ministry to others. And Paul says, instead, you must think with sober thinking, sane thinking, sensible thinking. To have an honest, realistic assessment Of ourselves. Oh, my friends, this is so necessary for how the body of Christ is to function in a local congregation. So important. In fact, so important. Look back at chapter 11, verse 20. And I'm just going to trace again some of these listings of this family of words here that means to think for now. you remember he tells the Gentiles who've been brought in by election through the cross of Christ into the body of Christ and the Jews of course might not like that and the gentiles might become proud and arrogant of the fact that they've been brought in they've been grafted in and he says Romans 11:20 yes it's true jewish branches were broken off so that we as gentile branches would be grafted in that is true They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. That word proud, franai. Don't become arrogant about this. It's absolutely number one priority in the thinking of a person who has his mind transformed by renewal. Number one, it's number one on the list. Look at chapter 12, verse 16. I showed it to you a couple of weeks ago. Live in harmony with one another. You don't see it in the English, but in the Greek text, live in harmony. The word harmony is again a form of phraneo. Live with harmonious thinking with one another. Romans 15, 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. There it is again, phronein. With one another in accord with Christ Jesus. He's going to say it over and over again. Second Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse thirteen. If we are in our right mind, he says, we we don't want to boast. We're not commending ourselves to you again. But we're giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. It's that same word that he uses about sober judgment in Romans twelve. To be in your right mind, to have good thinking. Look at chapter thirteen of second Corinthians, verse eleven. This is how important this is, my friends, for the body of Christ. Number one on our list. If you want to be transformed in your thinking by the renewal of your mind to prove what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is, here's at the top, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Agree with one another. Phronite. Agree with one another. Live in harmony. Agree. Remember Philippians 2? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And what kind of interests in others? You should be humble, you should be looking to them and their needs. Be of one mind, he says. Let each of you look out not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Now, I ask the question, with all of us, hundreds of us, sitting in this this worship center, how can we be of one mind, singular, collective singular? How can we do that? The the great challenge of doing that, beloved, is our humility toward one another. That's the only way this is going to happen. That's the only way we're going to be able to properly function in the body of Christ. That's the only way. Look at Philippians 3.19. Is, this is an opposite. This is what the world is. He says in verse 18, For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, here's what marks an enemy of the cross of Christ. Verse 19, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And, and they glory in their shame, here it is, with minds set on earthly things. That's, that's precisely opposite of Colossians 3, isn't it? Set your mind on heavenly things. Not on earthly things. The world sets its mind on earthly things. All using this word phrono in one way or another. Philippians 4.2 Remember when Euodia and Syntyche were having conflicts with one another. Chapter 4, verse 2. If you want your name written for all time's sake, better do some good things. Because here's Euodia and Syntyche not really coming out looking so good. Verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Agree. frane, Agree in the Lord. Have better thinking among yourselves, ladies, and not to be outdone, look at Titus chapter 2, verse 4. This is, this is really amazing. This sort of gathers, this one text in Titus chapter 2 sort of gathers all of the believers in the church. All of us together. Amazing how Paul does this. Titus 2. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says that an older man is to be, what? self Controlled. It says sober-minded, dignified, and then our word, self-controlled. That's a thinking word. That's sophronis. That's a thinking word. Self-control. It means you are controlling yourself by good thinking. You're thinking about controlling yourself. Verse 3. That's older men. Verse 2. Older women, verse 3, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train. And that's our word. That's a form of sophroneo. To train. Translated train there. We are to train. Older women are to train younger women to teach these younger women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled. There it is again, Sophronas, Same word that he used to the old, older men in verse 2. So he's sort of gathering all of us up here in the church and saying, older men, this is what you're to do. Older women, this is what you're to do. Older women, this is what you're to teach. Younger women, what they're supposed to do. And look at verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Our word again. And look further at verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control. That's our word again. So he just sort of gathers everything up and he says, older men do this, younger women do this are taught by the older women to do this, younger men are to do this, and all of us are to see the grace of God as so training us, teaching us, that we are all to be self-controlled. And that's an English word that really is speaking of our thinking. It's the proper Christian mind. The whole church is gathered up in that one chapter, chapter 2 of Titus, and it says, this is what we're supposed to do, this is what we're all about. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is a favorite memory verse of many, many people. They've committed it to memory. Some of them even have it as their life verse. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That's another form of our word for now. So you don't always see that. If you just see self-control, you're just saying, well, it's just sort of this idea of me needing to control myself, but link it to your thinking. Actions always proceed from thinking, whether good or bad. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. This is so replete in the New Testament that it's an emphasis for us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, and there's our word, and self-control. And look look at verse 15. Women will be saved through childbearing, sanctified, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And look look just one chapter later. Chapter 3, verse 2. This is supposed to be an actual qualification for an elder. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, there it is, self-controlled. Self-controlled. Same, same thing in Titus 1, eight, qualification of an elder, self control Got to have the right thinking. All of these passages are speaking of the proper use of the Christian mind, just as Paul says it in Romans 12.3. It's at the top of his list. Let me ask you this morning. Is it at the top of your list? Is the proper thinking, especially about self-control, about sober judgment, about not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think humility, is that at the top of your list? Brothers and sisters, it all comes down to thinking humbly. And I'll be one of the first ones to say, I, I... I survey my life. I I don't see a lot of humility. I look at my life and I see a constant battle with pride. Constant battle with lofty thoughts about myself, especially as you battle comparing yourself with others. Look at what Paul did in 1 Corinthians. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is, in essence, the very overriding theme of this first section of 1 Corinthians. Look at chapter 1. Verse 28, this is what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to understand. 1 Corinthians 1.28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life. In Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come, proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, High-minded speaking or wisdom, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Chapter 3, look at verse 5. He says, What then is Apollos? They were having all kinds of strife and jealousy among them. Someone was saying, I follow Paul. Somebody else was saying, I follow Apollos. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Who am I? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, it's the Lord who assigns it. I planted, yes. Apollos watered, sure. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Yes, he'll be rewarded for what he's done. We're, fellow, we're God's fellow workers. You're God's field, God's building. But it's according to the grace of God given to me, to all of us. <laughs> Look at chapter 4, verse 7. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? How can anybody boast in something they received as a gift? And then he says, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You know, when he begins to talk about all the various ministering functions in chapter 12, look over there, chapter 12, when he begins to talk about various ministry functions in the body of Christ... He says, yes, there are a variety of gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 4, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. It's the Holy Spirit who's doing this. Don't don't think it's you. Don't think it's your own energy. It's the Holy Spirit who assigns and empowers. To each is given, verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's the manifestation of the Spirit. Look at verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as who wills. As He wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, some of the same kind of language, different context from Romans 12, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. He says, verse 14, for the body does not consist consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You might even say, maybe there's false humility there. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I've no need of you. You see, that's proud. That's looking down. That's high-mindedness. I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Humble care. Humility. One member is honored. All rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now this this can be very, very practical. You say, well, how can I apply this? I think very easily. Ask yourself the question, number one, am I humble? Am I working on humility? Am I trying to do my best to slay pride in my life? Do I look down on other people? Am I envious of their ministry exploits? Do I become jealous of somebody who's having some upfront duty or some accolade or some recognition? Or it may be the other way. Maybe there's some of that false humility. Well, uh, since I'm not upfront or since I'm not being uh, accorded some kind of affirmation, then I'll just secede into the background. I, I don't really have any place, any part to play in the body. Paul's humility. The the humility that Paul is calling for in Romans 12:3 is that you should not think of yourself too highly, and it could be from one end of the pendulum to the other. This this idea of humility is absolutely important. We as men studied some things recently out of CJ Mahaney's book and I want you to listen to something that I found very Humorous, but also very telling. C.J. says in his wonderful book on humility, True Greatness, he says, "...the pursuit of humility cannot be a solitary endeavor. That's why the next practice, Invite and Pursue Correction, has a prominent and vital place on my list of ways to mortify pride and cultivate humility." Pride not only destroys, he says, it deceives. Sin in its deceptive power so often blinds us, leaving us unaware of flaws that others notice clearly. Take, for example, the man described in this story I came across. Here's the story. As I sat with my family at a local breakfast establishment, I noticed a finely dressed man at an adjacent table. His Armani suit and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wingtip shoes sparkled from a recent shine. Every hair was in place, including his perfectly groomed mustache. The man sat alone eating a bagel as he prepared for a meeting. As he reviewed the papers before him, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. It was obvious he had an important meeting ahead. The man stood up, and I watched as he straightened his tie and prepared to leave. Immediately, I noticed a blob of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed mustache. He was about to go into the world, dressed in his finest, with cream cheese on his face. I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who would tell him? Should I? What if no one did? C.J. Mahaney says this, Do you think you have a clear idea of where pride is at work in your life? Are you certain you have your act together when it comes to humility? Chances are you're like this finely dressed man, perfectly groomed and confident, but with a large blob of cream cheese on his mustache. And he says this about his own life, and this is very humble. He says, let me tell you about a cream cheese moment in my life. One of many such experiences that have helped convince me that no sin is more deceptive than pride. Again, that's probably why Paul has it number one on this list, Romans 12:3. I'm in an accountability group with men who care for and watch over my soul. In a meeting with these brothers, I was telling them of a specific pattern of sin I had noticed in my life in the past week. I'd become aware of this sin and had been convinced about it, and I confessed it to God and received his forgiveness. Now I wanted to inform these men about it as well. Then move on, because there was another particular issue I was more concerned about and wanted to discuss with them. But as I described in detail my sin from the previous week, my friends started to ask caring and insightful questions about the root issue behind the sin. I assured them the root issue was obvious. It was pride. I even transitioned into a brief teaching on pride. <laughs> then let the guys know I wanted to move on to something else. I thought, I thought that was more important and more serious. I'm sure there was mild irritation in my voice. But the men had more questions. They had more observations. They began to challenge me to look deeper at the pattern of sin I'd shown in the previous week. Again, I felt irritation. I assumed I understood that particular sin completely. Why are we spending so much time on something I'd already figured out? In essence, there was cream cheese all over my face, and I didn't know it. My underlying sin had deceived me. I was blind. I didn't see it and couldn't see it, but they saw it clearly. In my pride, I thought no one understood my heart as well as I did, but Scripture doesn't support such a conclusion. Actually, God's Word tells me, C.J., sin is subtle, sin is deceitful, and sin blinds you, and you need feedback from others in order to understand your heart. But you know, if you pursue that line with people, if you ask them, they're probably going to tell you. And if they're probably going to tell you, you're probably not going to like it. And if you probably aren't going to like it, you probably don't want to hear it from them. And if you don't want to hear it from them, then you'll continue in pride. He says, By God's grace, because the men seated around me in the room are true friends who care for me and aren't afraid of me, they persevered. Though I was arrogant, not only in assuming I fully understood my sin and its root issue, but also in my reluctance to explore it more deeply, those men persevered in kindness. And only by their kindness and perseverance, and only by God's grace, did I finally begin to perceive how much my sin had indeed deceived me. I saw that my confidence about fully knowing my soul in the situation and in assuming I needed no one else's eyes upon it was actually the height of arrogance. They were guarding my heart and helping me to see the true extent of my sin. I thought I'd already wiped the cream cheese from my face and it was gone. But they were faithfully telling me, it's not gone. We're staring at it. And we're telling you this because we love you. Now look, we all have perceptions about ourselves. Most of the time, we'd probably, if we were to confess it openly, would have a perspective about ourselves that isn't reality. It's higher than reality. It's higher than we ought to think. And that's why Paul is warning the Romans. That's why he's warning us. Now, but someone may be asking, okay, I want to have an accurate assessment of myself. I do want that. But what's the standard of that assessment? Well, look at Romans 12.3. Here's what Paul says. He says, right after he warns us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, he says, think with sober judgment. And then this, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does that mean? What does the measure of faith mean? What does the word measure mean? Well, it could mean measure in the sense of a measured quantity and apportionment. And that's what a lot of people think it means. It's maybe like an introduction to the things that Paul describes in verses 4 to 8, all of these ministries that we do to one another, where God could be said to assign or apportion certain areas or functions or gifts or abilities in the body, within the body. But I think it would be strange for Paul to be saying that there, because whenever he's used the word faith before in the book of Romans, he's always used it not in that sense, but in the sense of believing in Christ. So if he's talking now about some kind of apportionment of faith, it would be signaling the first time that he'd be using a different kind of meaning for the concept of faith or believing. It would almost make it sound like God assigns some or all with greater or lesser degrees of faith, faith in Christ. And I don't think that's what he's striving toward here. I think what he's really saying is, we all share a common faith. I think that's what he's saying. He's saying that the word measure is really like the word standard. Each according to the standard of faith that God has assigned. God has given every member of the body of Christ faith in Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus Christ, not only savingly, but in your sanctification. It's a life of faith and God has assigned you that faith and we all share the same standard, the same common faith and God has assigned it to us when we're first brought to Christ and then this right assessment of ourselves and our sanctification is that because I have faith in Christ and because I share that with all of my brothers and sisters in Christ, I ought to think rightly about myself, humbly about myself. And yes, he will go on to talk about these various ministries that God has assigned to us in verses 4 to 8. But here he's saying, here's, here's the standard. We all have a common faith. Nobody ought to be assuming that they're growing in their faith to the degree that they can look down on somebody else and say, you're not growing. I'm growing at a faster rate than you are. Sort of like, you know, little kids. I'm growing better than you are. Ask mommy. She'll tell you. Mommy said. No, we all share a common faith. God has assigned us faith. He's granted it to us. He's given us faith. And as He assigns you with various ministry aspects of the proper functioning of the body of Christ, you continue to believe that God is the one who gives you the strength, the supply, and as you serve excellently in the body, you don't have time to be proud. You don't have time to be looking down at other people. They have faith too. God has assigned them, believingly, to know Jesus Christ, to trust Him, and to also have a ministry responsibility in the body. And you can encourage them, not discourage them, by your humility, by your praying for them, by your interlinking arms with them, in the various ministries of of the body of Christ, praying for them. That's why we just prayed for our dear brother who has these pulmonary emboli because he's a major contributor to the body of Christ and we rejoice if God were to bring him back to full physical health so that he could continue to be a major contribution. If someone were thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think, they would be saying, well, what about me? Why can't I be a major contribution to the body of Christ? Instead, you pray. You ask God to raise up these these genuine God-wrought teachers of the body, these spokesmen for the Lord in this age. Doug Moo helpfully writes about this particular phrase if you're really wondering what it really means. He says, It is that faith, this idea of the measure of faith, it is that faith which believers have in common as fellow members of the body of Christ that Paul here highlights as the standard against which each of us is to estimate himself. How can you rightly assess? What's the standard? Here's the gold standard. Faith. Someone believe in Christ? Well, then you're my brother. Someone believe in Christ? Well, then you're my sister. We're all even. That's where we are. We have different functions, but we are all a part indivisibly of the body of Christ. And even though individually we have ministries, we have tasks, we have functions, we have abilities, all from the Lord. Can't take credit for any of it. And we minister in such a way that when we finish ministering on a particular day or week or month or year, we have affirmation from the people, maybe sometimes accountability from the people, maybe their their prayers, maybe their words, maybe their admonishments, and we receive it with humility and then we do the same in their lives. And as we grow together, we are humbly together, collectively serving in the right functions of the body of Christ because we are the body of Christ. God's assigned to each person the common standard of faith in Jesus Christ and He's assigned ministries and giftedness being operative in the body and we affirm that God is the one doing the assigning and this is the standard, the gold standard that through faith, it should motivate us to be humble and not arrogant and not proud. This is is Christianity 101. That's why it says after these... Phenomenal words. By the mercies of God, therefore, brothers, I appeal to you to to live as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And when you do, you're going to be able to discern what the will of God is, that will which is good and acceptable and perfect. And let me tell you right out of the chute that you've got to understand that you cannot think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think, but think with sober thinking. Before we even, he says, get in, gets in to the ministry functioning of the body and all of the areas where we are gifted and serving and we have abilities and talents and we have desires and aspirations before all of that is put in place and we are in the day-to-day of the traffic of ministry and we're doing the will of God from the heart and we're doing it to glorify God from the heart, we've got to make sure that we're not looking down on others. Let me close with this. Wayne Mack, our beloved brother on our staff, missionary in South Africa, teaches four months of the year here when he comes. He's written his own wonderful book called Humility, the Forgotten Virtue. I joked with him and said, Wayne, the only problem with this book, I loved it, loved it immensely. The only problem is it's a book on humility. Why did you put your name on it? He said, I'll talk to the publisher about that. This is what he says. This is so critical as we close this morning this is what he says Charles Spurgeon said the demon of pride was born with us and it will not die one hour before us it is so woven into the very warp and woof of our nature that till we are wrapped in our winding winding sheets we shall never hear the last of it Wayne Mack says in essence pride is the first sin to rear its ugly head when we're born and the last to go when we die Pride is a serious problem for us throughout our lives. In similar fashion, C.S. Lewis evidences his conviction about the seriousness of pride in this way. In his book, Mere Christianity, he asserts that pride is, quote, the essential vice, the utmost evil, unquote. And that it is, quote, one vice of which no man in the world is free and of which hardly any people ever imagine they are guilty themselves, unquote. That's the insidious nature of pride, It's like the person that said, I just gained humility. Well, you just lost it. Chrysostom, an early church leader, joined his voice to these perspectives when he said that pride is the mother of all evils. He's right. And Wayne Mack even says, very, very helpfully, quoting Augustine of old, on one occasion someone approached Augustine and asked, what is the most important quality in the Christian life? Augustine responded, humility. Humility. The person then asked, well, what is the second most important quality in the Christian life? Again, Augustine responded, humility. Same person asked a third time, what is the third most important quality? Augustine repeated, humility. Wayne Mack, we must judge from this exchange that Augustine deemed humility to be a tremendously important part of the Christian life. Whether or not the quality of humility or any other particular Christian life quality should be ranked higher than any other may be debated. But God's Word makes it very clear that humility is extremely important for believers. Are you humble? Are you on the road to humility? Follow me, because I'm not, but I want to get there. Let's bow together. Father, you have... You've once again... Sliced and diced us. And we are convicted. And Father, I pray that that convicting work of your Spirit will not just be for this morning's hour, but that we will truly learn, truly respond to Paul's very clear injunction. Not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But to think with sober thinking. Real thinking. Honest thinking. May we do so for your honor. For your glory. Because you've given all that we have to us. How could we boast as though we hadn't received it? Everything we have, we've received from you. Lord, may I lead this congregation with humility, not pride. To not think of myself more highly than I ought to think. To think in such a way that I'm barreling down the pathway blindly not recognizing that there's cream cheese on my face. Thank you for men and women who come alongside me. Thank you for fellow members of the body of Christ who come alongside each other and who admonish one another in this place. May we do it in love and with our own sense of desiring to be humble. Lord, I pray that we will Do that which is pleasing to You and genuinely a ministry to one another. Lord, I pray for those who are possibly here today who are filled in the very practice of their life with pride. I'll bring them to the prayer room, Father. Bring them to the place where they're speaking with those who brought them or myself or others so that they might confess unmitigated pride and seek to fall upon their knees in repentance and faith and to place their confidence and trust humbly in Jesus and Jesus alone for their salvation. We thank You so much, Father, for the Lord's Day. It's so special to us. Thank you for challenging us to have the proper Christian mind. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.